Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Amuse. I'm Stani. And I'm Sadie. Thank you for being here and joining us this Monday for a new episode. Today's episode is my artist pick for the month. And my artist that I picked out, I specifically picked them for Pride Month. So happy Pride Month, listeners. I was trying to think of like other, if people specifically want to listen to Mm -hmm. our non-straight artist people we've covered in the past. I was trying to think of them we haven't really like paid very close attention to (laughs) sexual orientation or preference before but i know for sure we've got a emily dickinson yes i think the main problem is that they're all alleged yeah you know Mm -hmm. because when we're talking about history there aren't very many of them that are who were able to be out and proud because of the environment and the world that they were living in that is so so true sometimes like we don't maybe talk about it as much because it is technically speculation like they didn't confirm it so it feels weird sometimes being like and they were gay that is a very good point because i feel like we have covered quite a few where we're like we're we're pretty sure like this woman that she was friends with like was not her friend but yeah <laughs> technically they never confirmed if it was anything more than so was it mary it shelley that we were talking who was the one who literally had like love letters between her and her husband's sister i mean husband's that was emily dickinson oh okay it was her her sister-in-law there Wait, right right it was the woman that her brother married yeah, okay, brother's wife. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I almost said brother's sister, and I'm like, mm, no. No, no. <laughs> Wrong. But there's a lot. I mean, I feel like, I think Tamara DeLampica, if I remember right. Oh, yeah. Because I, I know um, there's been a ton. That's why I was like, I so know many. we've talked about mm-hmm. this a lot. Uh, Louis Fuller, she was one that is That's right. pretty much confirmed. Another one that we just recently talked about is Vivian Meyer. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one's another speculated, but possible there's a lot also josephine baker right i think so like i said i haven't like kept track because i've just been like oh we don't know know? yeah that's the thing it's like (laughs) it's not as definitive but it's sprinkled here throughout all of the women that we've covered definitely i think especially in the women from the 20th century or yeah definitely but anyway happy pride month (laughs) yeah but anyways the point is Happy Pride Month. And this person, at least, I chose for Pride Month. I do also want to shout out two episodes um, that we have done. The first one is where I actually got this name from, which is the Provincetown Players. That's right. We did an episode on at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And this is when I discovered her name and started reading through about her life. And I honestly feel like with this episode that I'm like running like a gossip column because there were just like so many things happened and connections and everything that it's just like, I don't know, it just seems juicy. You I know? love that. It's like what we talked about last week where it's history is really just pop culture, but just from 100 years ago. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of similar thing where I don't think she had, she wasn't like famous, famous by any means, but it's like, it's always fun to like read through these people's stories and be like, oh, they were like very real people and had very, very <laughs> juicy lives, you know? <laughs> I love that. It always makes me wonder if like anyone's life would feel juicy if you lay out just the most sordid details. That's true. But then also some of these ones we've covered, I'm just like, no. Yeah, <laughs> my life will never come close <laughs> and to okay. the levels of interesting. For yes, real. definitely. Another episode that I think kind of calls back to this is we did the history of fashion and feminism, Ooh. where we talked a lot about like the suffragettes mm-hmm. and the history through them and how fashion kind of interplayed with that. She had a lot of like. <laughs> 
lot of things to say about the suffragettes in articles she wrote and it's just this happens at the same time so if you want more context to her there's going to be some things that i'll almost like lightly touch on but i'm not going to go into super heavy detail on because we talk about it in those episodes so if you do want more of the context of the background of her we have those episodes Hooray so for us so go listen we have the content for you but to finally introduce her we are talking about juna barnes today and I'm pretty sure in the Provincetown Players episode, I was like calling her like Joanna Barnes mm. because her name is spelled D-J-U-N-A. Yeah. And it just looks confusing, but it's it's just Juna. Juna Barnes. Hmm. But to quickly sum her up, she was born in 1892. She was an American artist, illustrator, journalist, and writer who is best known for her novel called Nightwood, which is a cult classic of lesbian fiction and an important work of modernist literature. Nice. Yes. For some state of the arts. So first, just to define what modernist literature is, literary modernism or modernist literature, it originated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it's characterized by like a self-conscious break with traditional ways of writing in both writing and fiction writing. Basically... Like after the big war, they just wanted to break from all the bad that was happening in the world. And so kind of like rejected the way things had been previously. I watched someone on YouTube give a review of her novel Nightwood. And it was just made me giggle because they're like, honestly, I didn't really know it was happening a lot of the time. But it was some of the most beautiful writing I'd ever read that like I didn't care. So... Okay. There we go. <laughs> kind of love that sometimes. Not for like every book. Yeah. But okay. Just I was listening to a podcast language. this week and they asked a question of like, would you prefer to read a book with a really good plot and crappy writing or a book with like a crappy plot and really good writing? Oh. Yeah. And everyone answers differently. And honestly, I was kind of like both depending on what mood yeah. I'm in. I was going to say, based off of my reading lately, it's been crappy writing, good plot. Um, yeah. But sometimes it's just nice to read something flowery. And right? I, I kind of want to get the book. I feel like I need to understand exactly what that reviewer was saying. But all the comments were agreeing with her of like, mm. yep, it's beautiful, was a little lost sometimes. <laughs> sometimes that's just the kind of book you need to read. It's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I love Great Gatsby. Terrible ending. But wow, it is so beautiful when you read that book. As a complete 180 as far as a state of the arts. But as I was reading about her life, there were just a couple instances where almost like the moral code of the world was being brought up. I was reading something about her life and it brought up the fact that there was no like public outcry about the fact that Nightwood was definitely about women lovers. And it brought up that it was maybe because the NYSSV was just like naive and didn't realize that that was talking about it. And so I'm gonna talk about the New York Society of the Suppression of Vice. I'm sorry, but that's hilarious to be like, it didn't get banned because everyone was just too stupid. No, I actually think that that's kind of why where it's like, they just like didn't realize. Anyways, I was reading that and I was like, wait, what? What is this? So there was an institution in New York dedicated to supervising the morality of the public. And it was founded in 1873. And its specific mission was to monitor compliance with state laws and work with the courts and district attorneys in bringing offenders to justice. It and its members, they also pushed for laws against perceived moral conduct. And it's honestly better remembered for its opposition to literary works. But it also closely monitored the newsstands, which I thought was like crazy and interesting too. Wait, how do you monitor the news? I think what would happen is like, if there was an organization or something that was like running a story or doing something, they would like almost like find them. Or I think they would like maybe just like publicly be against them. Mm -hmm. For example, there was a Broadway play called Sex that was actually shut down by them. I never heard of this, but it's by someone named Mae West, who I am now doing on a future episode but she actually like, spent 10 days in jail for this yeah i'm like i'm pretty sure i've heard her name they forced off the market of the book homo sapiens opposed market sanger and publishers of birth control books of course mm-hmm. the like most evil thing like in that. our world 
birth control. Yeah, literally birth control. <laughs> Encourage the arrest of bookstore employee Raymond D. Halsey for selling the obscene novel Mademoiselle de Maupin, which depicted adultery and homosexuality. So they had done it before, basically, where people were arrested for being associated with books that were talking about homosexuality and things like that so the fact that she wrote this book and it was published in america i think people were like oh no is this going to you know so come for them are they still the ones like responsible for books getting like banned no this group was disbanded in 1950 okay so it didn't last forever but the fact that it was so prominent for like 70 years and like actually put people in jail actually got books taken off shelves it was purposeful and it's not like they worked alone they worked with courts and with district attorneys so they were just upholding laws that already existed which I want to talk a little bit about the fact that there were very strict moral laws. So there's these things called the Comstock laws, which were a set of federal acts passed by the United States under the Grant administration. And what they did, because I'm sure there was like arguments of like, how can you under the constitution, like decide what's moral and Mm -hmm. what's not. But what it did is it criminalized any use of the U.S. Postal Service to send any of the following items, obscenity, contraceptives, (laughs) sex toys, and personal letters with any sexual content or information or any information about contraceptives, sex toys, or anything like that. How does that work with free speech? I think how they did it is they were like, oh, because the government controls the mail service. And so federally, we can decide what happens with the mail. So that was like their way of like kind of enforcing this moral code. That was by saying that it was, yeah, right. All about the postal service. But they took that even further. A similar act followed that made it apply to delivery by interstate express or any other like common carriers such as a railroad. So it didn't even have to be on the U.S. Post Office. It was basically just like if you use our federal railroads and you deliver these things, that's a crime, which is crazy. And then in addition to these federal laws, half of the states enacted laws that were also related to this. And these state laws were considered by a woman's right activist, Mary Dennett, to be these Comstack laws. She's the one who coined that phrase because the chief proponent of these was the U.S. Postal Inspector, who was a anti-vice activist named Anthony Comstock. So that kind of goes along with what that previous organization was because the suppression of vice, like they are the moral code anti-vice activist, which was insane to me. And then in Washington, D.C., where the federal government had direct jurisdiction, there was another Comstock Act, which made it illegal, punishable by up to five years at hard labor, to sell, lend, or give away any obscene publication or article used for contraception or abortion. To lend? Yeah, or to give away, like to even just do it for free. You could be in jail for five years for that. What on earth? There were numerous failed attempts to repeal or modify these laws. Many of them or portion of them, though, were eventually declared unconstitutional. In a 1919 issue of the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, Judge J.C. Ruppenthal, after reviewing the various laws, especially the state laws, he called the set of acts haphazard and capricious and lacking any clear, broad, well-defined principle or purpose. So he called him out for it. But I was actually reading and I'm not going to go in super heavy into it because truthfully, I don't really understand like the specifics of all of the court dealings and laws and everything. But some of the precedents that were like decided on these laws were still kind of like being used to justify later things. I don't know. If you want to learn more about it, I would definitely recommend just Googling Comstock laws. Wait, like you're saying even today? Or more recently than you would hope, basically, Mm. that they were like, oh, that's bad. (laughs) I get why we have like precedence and why that's a part of our legal system. But sometimes I'm just like, at some point, we have to understand that we can't use precedent as everything. Yeah. Like laws were passed that allowed slavery. Like maybe we should not consider the law the golden rule. Oh, gosh. Honestly. But anyways, so those are the Comstock laws, C-O-M-S-T-O-C-K. <laughs> and I felt like it was appropriate for a state of the arts to bring that up first, because just like we talked about at the beginning, there were a lot of women that we've covered that it wasn't confirmed if they were 
lesbian or gay or not and part of the reason why is because there were literally these kind of like laws that would like stop them from even writing about it and having you know potential jail time for things like can't even write a letter can't even write a letter about mm. sex. <laughs> a personal letter. A private <laughs> yeah. letter. How would they even know? That's so messed up. I fully agree. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so I was just shocked reading all about that. <laughs> that, that was happening in the early 20th century, which is right when she was thriving. So also I realized too, there are some trigger warnings here for sexual assault and suicide. And I will give the trigger warning right before I talk about it, where you can just skip 30 seconds like twice and then we'll be good but just wanted to give that forewarning at the beginning but anyways let's talk about juna so she was born in a log cabin on storm king mountain near cornwall and hudson in new york her paternal grandmother named zadel barnes was a writer journalist and a woman suffrage activist who had once hosted a very influential literary salon and then her father wald barnes was an unsuccessful composer musician and painter bless his little heart Bless his heart. He was actually also an advocate of polygamy. And he married Barnes' mother, Elizabeth J. Barnes, in 1889. And then his mistress, Frances Fanny Clark, moved in with them in 1897 when Barnes was five. They had eight children. Five were from Elizabeth, his first wife. And there were four from Fanny. I guess that's nine children altogether. I wonder if one of them passed away younger yes anyways wald made very little effort to support them financially awesome two wives and multiple children doesn't want to pay for them doesn't want to pay for right (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was surprised to read that he was a polygamist but it was definitely like in the name of free love Mm. that is the position he was coming from with that but zadell who was his mom and Juna's grandma, she believed her son was like a misunderstood artistic genius. So she would supplement their income. And she would also like write on their behalf, sending letters to friends and acquaintances, basically begging them for financial support for herself and for her son. Okay. Which was interesting. Juna was the second oldest child and much of her childhood was helping care for her siblings and half siblings. Makes sense. There's so many of you. And she received her early education at home, mostly from her father and grandmother who taught her writing, art and music. But they definitely neglected the subjects such as like math and spelling. Very artsy (laughs) at home, it seems. I mean, I probably wouldn't have been mad about that, but (laughs) personally, same. Um, And she claimed to have had no formal schooling at all. Some evidence suggests that she was maybe enrolled in a public school for a time after she turned 10, but there was nothing consistent. This is the trigger warning. So it's possible that at the age of 16, she was raped either by a neighbor with the knowledge and consent of her father or maybe even by her father. But these rumors are unconfirmed by Barnes, who never managed to complete her autobiography. Mm. But what is known is that Barnes and her father continued to write warm letters to one another until his death in 1934. But she refers to a rape in her first novel, Ryder, and more directly in her final play that she writes called The Antiphon. And there's a lot of like sexually explicit references in correspondence from her grandmother with whom she like shared a bed with for years. We don't know, though, if like that was like abuse or if it was like just teasing or... I don't know. Shortly before her 18th birthday, though, she reluctantly married Fanny Clark's brother, which was the other mom in the family, Percy Faulkner, in a private ceremony without benefit of clergy. He was 52. I was about to say, the other mom's brother? Yes. So, like, (laughs) kind of her uncle-ish? Kind of, yes. The... Match had been strongly promoted by her father, grandma, and mother. Of course. But she stayed with him for no more than two months. Good for her. I think the reason why they think that there was some type of sexual abuse is because a lot of her writing, it's like characters, but they're based off of people. And so 
based off of like the novels and the stories she wrote later in life it's kind of like hmm, you write about what you know you write about what you know and so while it maybe wasn't explicitly confirmed by her it's you know that's that's why it's not baseless is basically what i'm saying But moving on, in 1912, her family was basically facing complete financial ruin and they split up as a family. Elizabeth moved to New York City, which is her mom, with Barnes and three of her brothers, then filed for divorce, which allowed her dad to just marry Fanny Clark. But the move gave Barnes an opportunity to study art formally for the very first time. And she attended the Pratt Institute for about six months from 1912 to 1913 and at the Art Student League of New York from 1915 to 1916. But she needed to support her family and herself, of course, which unfortunately that burden fell a lot on her. Mm-hmm. And soon that drove her just to leave school and take a job as a reporter at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Upon arriving for her job interview, apparently she said i can draw and write and you'd be a fool not to hire me (laughs) and i think that's very sweet and apparently those words were inscribed inside the brooklyn museum which i think is really cool i like but over the next few years her work appeared in almost every newspaper in new york including the new york press the world and the calls she wrote interviews features theater reviews and a variety of news stories often illustrating them with her own drawings and she also published short fiction in the new york morning telegraph sunday supplement and in the pulp magazine all-star caviar weekly so she was thriving she was writing all over for new york what i thought was cool is that much of her journalism was like really subjective and experimental she was writing about a conversation with james joyce and she admitted to missing part of what he said because her attention had wandered which (laughs) i think is like just like he was boring (laughs) yeah but at the same time like she did love and revere his writing she was interviewing a successful playwright named donald ogden stewart and apparently she shouted at him for rolling over and finding yourself famous while other writers continue to struggle she said she wouldn't mind dying in the interview that she published so at the end of her interview with the playwright after she shouts at him for just being famous when other people struggle she's like and i wouldn't mind dying basically shows her approach (laughs) another funny one is she did a article called the girl and the gorilla in 1914 she has a conversation with dinah which is a female gorilla at the bronx zoo so just awesome another article (laughs) which shout out to our suffrage episode that we did where we talked about that where we talked about that they would be like force fed after they were doing hunger strikes Mm. so she submitted herself to force feed because if i play acting felt my being burning with revolt at this brutal usurpation of my own functions how they who actually suffered the ordeal in its acutest horror must have flamed at the violation of the sanctuaries of their spirits and she said i had shared the greatest experience of the bravest of my sex so i guess in solidarity for those suffragettes and because she felt like she couldn't write about it unless she knew it we go back to you write what you know she participated in this She also, though, would publicly mock certain suffragettes. She did not like one named Carrie Chapman Catt, who I think was like one of the main suffragettes. Hmm. So she thought she was too conservative and called her out for different things. Um, Another thing is she wrote about boxing a lot because apparently she immersed herself in risky situations in order to access experiences that a previous generation of homebound women had been denied. So she would go with her siblings to the boxing rink so that she could like write about that because women hadn't been able to attend in the past. I kind of love that approach. I do too. But then in 1915, she moved out of her family's flat to an apartment in Greenwich Village, which I think in your artist this month, we talked about. We talked about Greenwich Greenwich a lot. Yeah, it's everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it was like historical art capital of New York. Kind of unavoidable when you do a podcast about artists. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But that's where she kind of entered this thriving bohemian community of artists and writers. She came into contact with Judo Bruno, who was an entrepreneur and a promoter who published magazine and chat books, which is basically just small like books. I kind of almost think of it as zine. Yeah. That's how it makes sense to me. That makes sense. But he had a reputation for unscrupulousness and was often accused of exploiting these Greenwich Village residents for profit. For example, he used to charge tourists admission to watch the Bohemians paint. But he was a strong opponent of censorship and was willing to risk prosecution by publishing her 1915 collections of rhythms and drawings. So 
wasn't maybe, you know, the best dude. He kind of exploited them. But at the same time, he was willing to champion them and take risks for them. So, you know. But anyways, despite a description of sex between women in the first poem, like the first poem, it's not like it's buried in like the 13 out of 15 or like whatever. Like it's the very first one. The book was never legally challenged. And nowadays the passage seems explicit. But at, a time, but at the time, lesbianism wasn't as prominent in American culture. The New York Society for the Suppression of Vice may not have understood its imagery. Others, though, were not as naive, and Bruno was able to cash in on the book's reputation by raising the price to 15 to 50 cents and pocketing the difference. Oh. So, again, a little slimy. Yeah. But at the same time, the people who got it, they were like, wait, I want it. The audience existed for the book. 20 years later, though, which goes back to she wrote what she knew. She used Bruno as one of the models for Felix Volkbein in Nightwood, caricaturing his pretension to nobility and his habit of bowing down before anyone titled or important. So mm. seems like she was well aware of who she was, yeah. who he was, I mean. She was a member of the Provincetown Players, which was an amateur theatrical collective whose emphasis was on artistic rather than commercial success. And that definitely meshed in with her own values. Obviously, if you Mm want to go listen about them, we have a whole episode available. Greenwich Village, as we talked about, was known for its atmosphere of sexual as well as intellectual freedom. She was actually unusual among villagers and having been raised with a philosophy already of free love, both by her grandmother and her father. (laughs) Her father's vision had included a commitment to unlimited procreation which she strongly rejected she actually was really critical of childbearing and that would become a really major theme in her work Mm. which i guess makes sense because she came from a family that like had more children than they had the means to support yeah i have found it interesting i swear kids that grow up in families with a lot of kids end up not really wanting a lot of kids which is interesting. Yeah. She did, however, though, like retain sexual freedom as a value. In the 1930s, she told Antonia White that, quote, she had no feeling of guilt, whatever about sex and going to bed with any man or woman she wanted. There was also letters um, between her family that suggest that they were very well aware of her bisexuality. At the time, she was at least 21. She had a number of affairs with both men and women during her Greenwich Village years. Of these, the most important was probably her engagement to Ernst Hanks Hanksfangle, I think is how you say his wow, last name. That's a name. Who was a Harvard graduate who ran the American branch of his arts, his family's art publishing house. He had once given a piano concert at the White House, by the way. So wow. but okay, this is actually crazy. When <laughs> when I was first reading this, my jaw dropped. So, like I mentioned, he once gave a concert at the White House and was a friend of the then New York State Senator Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But he became increasingly angered by the anti-German sentiment in the United States during World War I. In 1916, he told Barnes that he wanted a German wife. And so they broke up, which actually was a very painful breakup for her that became the basis of a deleted scene in her novel Nightwood. But then he later returned to Germany and became a close associate of none other than Adolf Hitler. So his German pride ran a little too deep. Ran a little bit too deep. So was he was German, though? I'm assuming, yes. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> for a minute there, I was like, he just really liked Germans. You he just really loved Germans. I don't know. So did he become like an actual Nazi or just like a close associate of Hitler? I mean, is there a difference? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe in the early days of Hitler before he like... I don't know if he was a close associate of Hitler for the rest of their lives or if he just like met him once. But I'm going to safely assume. Yeah. Yes. So then we'll just say good for her. Yeah. She dodged a bullet. Oh, gosh. I just I could not believe that. Like, yeah. That's OK. Insane. I mean, Hitler. that's the time period. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. starting in 1916, she lived with a socialist philosopher and critic named Courtney Lemon, whom she referred to as her common law husband. But this too ended for reasons that we're not really sure. She had a passionate romantic relationship with Mary Pine, who I think is someone we mentioned. I recognize that name. So I'm assuming the Provincetown player. Probably. Um, But she was a reporter for the New York Press and a fellow member. Aha, there it is. Of Provincetown players. I was right. I could have just read ahead in my notes. You're good. (laughs) But she actually died of tuberculosis in 1919. But they were together until Mary died. This is her first book after the ones that were published earlier. It was called The Book of Repulsive Women, (laughs) and it collects eight rhythms, or I guess 
poems and five drawings. The poems show the strong influence of late 19th century decadence and the style of illustrations resembles someone named Aubrey Birdsley. Setting is New York City and the subjects are all women, a cabaret singer, a woman seen through an open window from the elevated train, and in the last poem, the corpses of two suicides in the morgue. The book describes women's bodies and sexuality in terms that have struck many readers as repulsive. But as with many of Barnes' work, the author's stance is ambiguous. Some critics read the poems as exposing and satirizing cultural attitudes, though, towards women. But she actually later came to regard the book of repulsive women as an embarrassment. She called the title idiotic and basically left it out of her resume and burned copies of it. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) But because the copyright had never been registered by her, she was actually unable able to prevent it from being republished and it became one of her most reprinted works so poor judah she considers it an embarrassment and the whole world's like we don't care Mm -hmm. we're gonna still do what we want with it we're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists I found this person on our Instagram discover page, which I always love. I cannot say her last name, so I'm not going to try, but her name is Daniela. The username is Daniela underscore digital underscore art. And this is like her digital art page. She also has like a traditional art page. That's Daniela underscore a dot r dot t. I don't know what language that is. Oh, yeah. I don't know what language it is either. I wish it would tell you when it says like C translation. Like True. <laughs> like it's in this. Cause... Like this is what we're <laughs> translating it from. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. I'm not sure. But she's done like a lot of digital portraits lately that like caught my eye. Cool. It looks like some of them are inspired by like Greek goddesses, I would assume. What? But then she also has a bunch of women with like flowers in their hair. And then she's done like some mermaids. they're just really cool they really are i love how much detail people are able to get into digital art that's like not my forte and the fact that she's doing all of this on procreate like (laughs) it says it just blows my mind because i have procreate i use procreate do i use it the way that she uses procreate no (laughs) not even close so just really really cool definitely check out and her traditional page as well like she's got murals and paintings on there that she's done and they're beautiful well i'm going to be shouting out someone who showed up on my instagram for you page or explore page because of there was a picture she did of the new ariel and eric from the little mermaid love that yes it's michi chocoletto i believe i'm gonna it's just m-i-c-h-i-c-h-o-c-o-l-e-t-o They're a 3D storyboard artist and illustrator, and she does commissions and a freelancer. So if you wanted to go check her out, you could. But Mm -hmm. she does, yeah, she's an illustrator, and she does so many cute Cute. characters. A lot of them are like, on her Instagram are the recognizable ones. Little Mermaid and Eric, Belle, Iron Man, you know, all kinds of things that are fun. Star Wars references, all that fun. So... You could definitely go check out. There's a couple of The Little Mermaid, which, I mean, makes sense. It's definitely relevant. So. Cute. And there's commissions. So if you want one, you can go get one. These are adorable. She really loves Ray and Kylo Ren. I was Ren. just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> she, she ships them, for sure. Yeah, they're everywhere. Oh, I love the little Han and Leia one with the Ewok. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite Leia look. The one at the end where she's got, like, those... That cool, like, thing with, like, the twine in her hair. Yeah. mm -hmm. I always loved that one. So, yeah. Go follow Michi Chocolato. All right. Now, back to the show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
But in the 1920s, obviously Paris was the center of art. And I think this is a really common thing with even people who are in Greenwich Village. They start there and then they go to Paris. But she first traveled there in 1921 on an assignment from McCall's, which was a newspaper that she was writing for. But even before her first novel was published, her literary reputation was already really high, largely because she had a story called A Night Among the Horses, which was published in the Little Review and reprinted in her 1923 collection of book. She was part of the inner circle and the influential salon host named Natalie Barney, who became a lifelong friend of hers, as well as a central figure in her satiric chronicle of Paris lesbian life called Ladies' Almanac. And the most important relationship of Barnes' Paris years, though, was with the artist Thelma Wood. Wood was a woman from Kansas who had come to Paris to become a sculptor, but at Barnes' suggestion took up Silver Point instead, which eventually I'm sure there will be an episode on Thelma Wood. Yeah, what's um, Silver Point? Right? And she would produce drawings of animals and plants with that one critic compared to Henry Rousseau. So that's cool. Silver Point, though, is a traditional drawing technique first used by medieval scribes or on manuscripts, by the way. So it's not like what I was originally picturing. It's basically just like very basic drawings on manuscripts. But it sounds so fancy. It really does, doesn't (laughs) it? The next time you draw with a graphite pencil, you can call it silver point. Mm -hmm. Just kidding. The tools are a little cooler than that, but still. (laughs) Other close relationships that developed during this time was with the Dada artist, Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven, which is a great name. Yes. Um, They became great friends. What was her name? Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. I feel like I've heard of her. We did talk about a Dada artist, Beatrice Wood, but... I would not be surprised if they all existed in the same circles. That's very possible. So her first novel came out in 1928, or one of her first ones. It's called Writer. And this is a book that draws heavily on her childhood experiences in Cromwell and Hudson. It covers 50 years of history of the Ryder family. Sophia Grieve Ryder, like Zadal, a former salon hostess, fallen into poverty, her idol son Wendell, his wife Amelia, his resident mistress, Kate Careless, which is hilarious, and their children. So it's like, it's based on her life almost exactly. She just gave them all different names, which good for her. I know. She appears as Wendell and Amelia's daughter, Julie. Oh, it's Juna, Julie. Okay. (laughs) You know, Wendell wald like Mm -hmm. it's he's idle there's a mistress and a mother a resident mistress (laughs) named kate careless like okay i get it we get it we get it (laughs) yeah and good for her as a songwriter myself who is very autobiographical good for you seriously but this book would not only present readers with the difficulty of deciphering its shifting literary styles but also with the challenge of piecing together the history of an unconventional polygamous household far removed from most readers' expectations and experiences. Despite the difficulty, though, of the text, her bodiness apparently drew attention, and it briefly became a New York Times bestseller. Its popularity caught the publisher unprepared, and a first edition of 3,000 sold out quickly. But by the time more copies were made into bookstores, kind of the public interest for it had died down. Still, the advance allowed Barnes to buy a new apartment where she lived with Thelma Wood starting in September of 1927. And there is the book Ladies' Almanac. Due to its subject matter, it was published in a small privately printed edition under the pseudonym of A Lady of Fashion. Copies were sold on the streets of Paris by Barnes and her friends, and Barnes managed to smuggle, actually, a few into the United States to sell. A bookseller named Edward Titus offered to carry Ladies' Almanac in his store in exchange for being mentioned on the title page, but when he demanded a share of the royalties on the entire print run, she was furious. Then she later gave the name Titus to the abusive father in her play that she wrote at the end of her life so i love her (laughs) me too i'm like yes make them your evil characters i love too the idea that they were like making secret titles for like yes for her lesbian stories to like Mm -hmm. hide what they were about that's hilarious I know. I love it so much. (laughs) She dedicated both the books, Ryder and Ladies' Almanac, to Thelma Wood. But the year 
both books were published. 1928 was also the year that she and Wood separated. She wanted their relationship to be monogamous, but had discovered that Wood wanted her along with the rest of the world. And then Wood also had a worsening dependency on alcohol. She spent her nights drinking and seeking out partners. Apparently, Barnes would search the cafes for her, often winding up equally drunk. Barnes broke up with Wood over her involvement with the heiress Henriette McCray McClaff, which is someone that we covered had a relationship with her and i need to do better at piecing all of this together at this point because it's hard i know i know that name the more episodes we do the more overlapping timelines there are yes and the more my brain can't, can't... keep it straight yeah <laughs> i know because i'm just like oh okay like but this was in california but that was over here but that was in paris when they were it it's too much but they were here and that was there yes exactly if anyone out there ever wants to make like a timeline please that would be amazing (laughs) my point though of mentioning henriette mccray mccaff is because she was used scathingly portrayed in nightwood as someone named jenny petterbridge so again she just used her enemies as characters, and I love her for it. Yeah, I love that. 1930s is when her novel, Nightwood, is written and comes out. Much of it was written during the summers of 1932 and 1933. She was staying at Hayford Hall, which is a country manor, which just sounds lovely. Yeah. There were a lot of residents at this manor, fellow artists and writers. One of them was a poet named Emily Coleman. I mention her because Emily Coleman ended up being like a huge champion of this book. I thought this was funny that Evenings at the Manor, nicknamed Hangover Hall by its residents, <laughs> often featured a party game called Truth that encouraged just brutal frankness, which would make you know the environment kind of tense because they were being brutally truth- truthful with each other. My like group of friends in middle school, we would basically just play Truth or Truth, which is basically all of us sitting in a circle making each other tell each other who we had a crush on. <laughs> kind of reminded me of that. <laughs> we were just ruthless, making all the boys uncomfortable. It was fine. What I thought was funny is Barnes was afraid to leave her work in progress unattended because of Emily Coleman, because she had told Barnes one of her secrets and had threatened to burn the manuscript if Barnes ever told her secret. But once she read the book, Coleman became its champion. And her critiques of successive draft led Barnes to make major changes. And when publisher after publisher rejected this manuscript, Coleman passed it on to T.S. Eliot, who was an editor at Faber, and then Faber read it. So because of her, it came to be, which is funny because she said, if you tell my secret, I'll burn your manuscript. And then once she read it, she was like, wait, no, never mind. I'm going to help you get this published, which I think is nice. (laughs) That is nice. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, the greater good. Exactly. (laughs) But Faber published the book in 1936. Though reviews treat it as a major work of art, the book did not sell very well. She didn't even receive an advance from Faber, which is annoying. And her first royalty statement was for only 43 pounds. And the U.S. edition didn't really fare much better. But the novel was set in Paris in the 1920s, revolves around five characters, two of whom are based on Barnes and Woods, and it reflects the circumstances surrounding the ending of their relationship. In his introduction, Eliot praises Barnes' style, which, while having prose rhythm and the musical pattern, which is not that averse, it is so good a novel that only sensibilities trained on poetry can wholly appreciate it, which is consistent with the review that I heard on YouTube. But due to concerns about censorship, it was edited heavily to soften some language relating to sexuality and religion. Dylan Thomas described Nightwood as one of the three great prose books ever written by a woman, which I thought was cool. Willem Burroughs called it one of the great books of the 20th century, and it was a number 12 on a list of top 100 gay books compiled by the Publishing Triangle (laughs) in 1999. So there you go. There we go. But by this point, though, she had stopped with journalism and was largely dependent on Peggy Guggenheim's financial support, which was the owner of the manor she was staying in. Mm. She was constantly ill and drank more and more heavily. According to Peggy, she accounted a bottle of whiskey per day. Trigger warning for the next like 10 seconds. But February of 1939, she checked into a hotel in London and there was a suicide attempt. Peggy funded hospitals, visits and doctors, but eventually like lost patience with her and sent her back to New York, where she shared a single room with her mother, who apparently coughed all night and kept her reading passages of Mary Baker Eddy. So anyways, because she converted to Christian Mm. science. In March 1940, though, her family sent her to a sanatorium in upstate New York City to 
dry out. <laughs> um, she was furious and began to plan a biography for her family, writing to Emily Coleman that, quote, there is no reason any longer why I should feel for them any way but hate. And this idea would basically eventually come to fruition in her play, The Antiphon. So, you know, very publicly yeah. wrote about her family. But after she returned to New York City, she quarreled bitterly with her mother and was thrown out on the street. So did not end well. But you know what? You can't blame her from sounding yeah. like where that all came from. She was left with nowhere else to go, so she stayed at Thelma Wood's apartment while Wood was out of town, then spent two months on a working ranch in Arizona with the Emily Coleman and her lover. She returned to New York and in September moved into a small apartment again in Greenwich Village where she would spend the last 41 years of her life. Uh, throughout the 1940s, she continued to drink and wrote virtually nothing. Peggy Guggenheim, who's the you know, same woman who supported her, provided her with a small stipend and Coleman would send her $20 per month to try and help her. In 1943, she was included in Peggy Guggenheim's show Exhibition by 31 Women at the Art of the Century Galaxy in New York. Mm -hmm. By 1946, though, she worked for Henry Holt as a manuscript reader, but her reports were not very great and she was fired. But then in 1950, she realized that alcoholism had made it impossible for her to function as an artist. She stopped drinking in order to begin working on her play, which is the antiphon, antiphon, A-N-T-I-P-H-O-N, antiphon, I think. The play drew heavily on her own family history and the writing was fueled by anger. She said, I wrote the antiphon with clenched teeth and I noted that my handwriting was as savage as a dagger. When she read the play, her brother Thurn accused her of wanting revenge for something long dead and to be forgotten. I disagree. Barnes, in the margin of his letter, described his motive as justice and next to dead, she inscribed not dead. So something long dead, no, not dead. After the antiphon, she returned to writing poetry, which she worked and reworked, producing as many as 500 drafts. She wrote eight hours per day, despite a growing list of health problems, including arthritis so severe that she had difficulty even sitting at her typewriter or turning on her desk lamp. Many of those poems, though, never were finalized and only a few were published within her lifetime. But... In her later years, she became a recluse, intensely suspicious of anyone she did not know well. E.E. E. Cummings, who actually lived across the street, would check on her periodically by shouting out the window, are you still alive, Juna? Bertha Harris put roses on her mailbox, but never succeeded in meeting her. Someone would camp out on her doorstep, but Juno called down, whoever's ringing the spell, please go the hell away. Oh. She even had a like a big fan who was such a big fan of her work, Nightwood, that she wrote to Barnes several times inviting her to participate in a journal on women's writing, but received no reply. Um, and she actually like, like Juna was very like contemptuous of her, would cross the street to avoid her. She was angry that she had named a character Juna and when the feminist bookstore, Juna Books, opened in Greenwich Village, Barnes called to demand that the name be changed. Yikes. So she did not like the admiration that yeah. people were you know, having for her. But she was the last surviving member of the first generation of English language modernists when she died in her home June 18th, 1982, just six days after her 90th birthday. So she lived a really long time. Yeah. But as far as her legacy goes, she's been cited as an influence for many writers and authors. There was a writer named Bertha Harris described her work as practically the only available expression of lesbian culture we have in the modern Western world, which I think is really cool. And then this is just like a really random thing that she managed to do. Her biographical notes and collection of manuscripts have been a major source for scholars who have brought the Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringham's forth from the margins of Dada history. And they were key in producing body sweats which was the uncensored writings of elsa von freytag lovinghaven which is just a wow. fun name to say it really is which was the first major english collection of the baroness's poems and also a biography titled after her which was baroness elsa gender dada and everyday modernity so it was because of a lot of what juna like kept record on of her life so because of that they were able to really champion this autobiography which now i'm like okay cool looks like we are doing a future episode on this baroness i know we have to fit her name in the title but yeah i swear she came up before i think so too but anyways i just thought that was really cool she didn't even mean to but she was also championing women's work so there is juna barnes the life and legacy of her she lived an amazing life and eventually i will read nightwood maybe even just pieces of it yeah and you should too i mean it probably isn't that long right 
It's 180 pages. Oh, we could all read that. We could read it in an afternoon. Well, anyways, so there is the life of Juna. Like I said, I felt like almost like it was gossipy because like because then she was this person's lover and then Mm. she based her next book on his character and he did this and she did this. But you know what? It's actually very tragic because it seems like her life was... I don't want to say defined by it because I don't want anyone to be defined by the bad things that happened to them. But it was unfortunately something that you can't escape because oftentimes, you know, there's tragedy and trauma that runs deep and she was marked by it. And I'm at least grateful that she took it to pen and paper and was able to write about it in a way that served her. So go check out her writings and her poems. That's where I know her name. Hmm. Elsa von Freytag Lorenhoven. Yes. She came up in, remember I started that document of misogyny and misattribution? Yeah. She's in there. Oh, cool. Okay. Hmm. This might be like a fun little note to end on. It's not related to this episode, except for it's talking about Elsa von Freytag Lorenhoven. But cool. This has got to be one of my favorite art pieces because it is so weird. I'm sure you've seen it. There was a urinal that was submitted in 1917 to a New York City exhibition called The Fountain. Yes. And it says our mutt on the side. For a long time, they have attributed this work to Marcel Duchamp. He didn't ever take credit for it until after the Baroness Elsa von Freytag Lorenhoven had died because (gasps) it is very, very almost certain believed that Marcel Duchamp submitted it for his female friend, Elsa von Freytag Lorenhoven. There we go. That's why we know the name because we talked about that. I was like, I know we talked about this. Like, I knew we didn't cover her specifically, but I was like, that name is too memorable. Yeah, you don't just casually know that name from something else. And I think when I talked about Dada for Beatrice Ward, I'm sure it came up. But that's literally like the most famous Dada piece of art that there is, is that urinal with our mutt on the side and it was her it was her amazing well there we yeah. go i'm glad you solved the mystery of who <laughs> no, it's like, was. this is gonna bother me all night long if i don't figure it out oh man well, anyway you're right there is a lighthearted note to end the episode on yeah so there you go and google still has it wrong it still says marcel Ducamp because he took credit for it after she died so now Boo. you all know something that google doesn't know There we go. Thank you for being here and for listening. And join us next week. We will have another awesome episode for you. What are we covering again? Oh, yeah. Battle of Versailles. We'll be talking about the Battle of Versailles. Which Which is is not a war, but very cool. (laughs) But come next week to find out what it is. Yes. I'm excited about this one. If you're a fan of the podcast, go follow us on Instagram, which is morethanamuse.podcast. Leave a review. Share us with your favorite friend. Mm -hmm. and, And that's it. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.